a builder of businesses, digitally focused, futurist, and industry savant. Josh Book isn't just a CEO of Parameter Insights, but rather a vital resource to any founder, CEO, or COO within the wealth management space in order to understand what lies ahead in our industry and to know what your clients are not only saying, but how they are actually acting. Josh is using his experience from many of the leading consultancies like Capgemini, PwC, and Accenture to hone in on a focus on empowering wealth managers with the knowledge and tools to ensure their businesses don't get stuck in the mud, but actually bask in the glory of the digital future in our industry. He knows the tech and he knows the business and he has the ability to hone that knowledge to deliver actionable takeaways to advisors, and we are lucky enough to speak with him today. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Josh, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us. Uh, you having a good week so far? We are. Thanks so much, Matt. That was an outstanding introduction, by the way. Thank you very yeah, much. My pleasure. Happy to be with you. It's an outstanding <laughs> guest, so that's what uh, that's what it deserves. But uh, you know, talking briefly before this podcast, um, a few things that are interesting. One, uh, you're a runner and you're a marathon runner, um, and you're very consistent. You bring consistency <laughs> to marathons that financial advisors desire with their uh, investment portfolios to clients every day. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, you're you're too kind. Yeah, I've uh, I, I would say I'm a former marathon runner. I do still run, but not at those distances, given my my age and and knee knee structures. I would say, but yes, I um I, I ran the same marathon, the Ottawa Marathon, uh, two years in a row, and oddly, and it was not by plan. It just happened this way. I don't know that I could do this if trying, but just finished 21 seconds apart each year. Um, but I did improve by the 21 seconds in the second year. So that was uh, a, a bellwether, I suppose. And, and I'll be the one to brag a little bit, but those are both under four-hour marathons. I, I think that uh, running for even three and a half hours is is not <laughs> something that like gets me up and going and juiced ready to go. That's not, but I no. give you credit for that. Nor me either. Not bad for a chubby guy. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing, when we were, it was funny because when we were uh, talking about, you know, back and forth for the prepping for the podcast, you had mentioned uh, you, that you and your wife were blaring a uh, a, a song by uh, the Gloria song to get you pumped up. And so we want, I want to dive into that for a second. But what I took away from that is, so do you and your wife work together because y'all were driving together? Which I love the no. Car. No, yeah, we just carpool because both our offices are, are in downtown Toronto. Um, so you know, oddly, my my Apple uh, to iTunes just sort of uh, or Apple Music just popped up with Gloria, and we just rolled with it. We were we blared it, and if it's like flash dance all over again, and ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, well, good. Well, I'm excited about this conversation because I've I've been reading a lot of the research that you and your team have been putting out at Parameter Insights, and I love it. Uh, first and foremost, I think it's really great research. It's actionable. Um, <clears throat> And it's insightful for this industry where we have a lot of innovation going on, um, and there is so much going uh, on in the space that it's difficult. So kind of just give us a little background of what led you to start Perimeter Insights and why you thought it was such a, a great time to bring this to the market within wealth management. 
Yeah, thanks. So uh, back in sort of mid mid late 2014, I'd made the the choice to um, leave kind of big C management consulting with the Accenture. I had a uh, kind of a drive to do something on my own, always a bit of an entrepreneurial um, itch, I suppose, and, and the timing felt right um, to give a shot. And we had originally started out as kind of a boutique um, strategy offer, but that was centered around um, data and analytics and, and bringing kind of innovative and interesting ways uh, for executives to use data meaningfully rather than have to, you know, in, engage in some large scale uh, business transformation. Um and we were fortunate to get engaged by one of the bank's um, wealth management practices here here in Canada um, as part of their sort of build by partnering decision making around um, robo advice. And we were part of the engagement was to look at kind of competitive analysis and you know what was out in the market and do a market scan. And we were blown away by how little information and data, meaningful data and scientific data there was at the time. It was a very kind of hot, um, exciting, you know, space, robo-advice. And they were all the, the, the journals and, um, and media were kind of gravitating towards those kinds of headline-grabbing comments like Uberization of the wealth business and so on. But we couldn't find any um, meaningful research and data that would help, you know, unpack some of these assertions like, you know, robo is going to eat every millennial dollar, for instance, in in the wealth management space. Um, You know, who's to say that your age, for instance, is the, you know, the the predicator or the key variable in your propensity to consume wealth management services digitally? Um, And so we had some some data analytics um, and data science expertise in our team who also happened to have some good research um, background, market research background. And we thought this was an opportunity at a a pretty early stage of this evolution in wealth to start to to craft um, a research program that would cover this more from the consumer perspective. Of course, we look at all the suppliers and see what they're doing and how that, you know, any of them may be moving the needle, but more from a consumer perspective. Um, So we could really help executives who are making pretty key um, capital choices and strategic choices in their businesses um, to meaningfully have some data around those. And we also thought that, you know, the the space was going to move quite quickly or relatively quickly as things go in financial services. Um, and that would have an impact on consumers as well and their expectations and how they perceive things. And that would change over time as well. So we thought it a good opportunity to kind of build some um, more scientific and empirical uh, data products to help support that, and then we work in an advisory capacity with all of uh, all of our clients, and that gives us kind of an interesting um, bent where we can really understand what are the questions of the day, what are the things that that executives who are who are wrestling with the wealth management business as it, as it evolves, what are they thinking about, what are they worried about, how are they thinking about their business evolving, and so we can bring that layer of um, of experience, I guess, into what we what we seek out for from consumers around uh, you know from a data perspective you know what what things matter yeah no i i love that and i and with in kind of of going into that space of saying you know what you are what you're seeing from the consumer side and from those conversations with some of the partners you know you start every research piece with the idea with the words the world is changing so is wealth management and then you bullet out five ways really kind of overarching topics of how the world is changing you know talk to us about how you're seeing 
this industry change. Robo advice is changing it, but you know, we can take it from a high level 35,000 foot view and then we can go down even deeper. But how do you see this world or this industry changing? Yeah, um, great question. You know, the, the questions, the, how we start each, each um, publication, and we deliver them quarterly. Um, to our subscribers um, is is we try to really zero in, as I was saying before, on those. The, what are the key questions of the day, and try to answer those. Um, you know, because to, to maintain some relevancy around what what kinds of questions executives are are, are wrestling with, um, rather than kind of delivering some monolithic tomb of research and data um, that that is difficult to read and engage with. So that's kind of. Um, where that that um, I guess style uh, evolved from. In terms of the industry changing, you know, Matt, not it's not changing quite like I had hoped. I suppose uh, maybe as a as an you know sort of a, an ambitious guy who likes technology and wants to see um, movement and change more rapidly. Um, you know, I have to always remember you know the category that we're in. Um, and that this is relatively, um, you know, the technology and, and business operating models is, is, is difficult um, to kind of get innovation on. Um, I've seen, you know, the wealth space and financial services, I guess the wealth space specifically, um, really do what, what I know them to do, which is be great at, you know, developing um, and pushing a product or a service. Um, and this, in this case, it's sort of movement to digital, which is sort of the flavor of the month. Um, and I think that, you know, change in any movement is, is really necessary and a, and a positive thing. Um, I'd love to see more innovation and bolder moves around the business models themselves that foster a bit more convergence of the wealth management business. So like um, not just, you know, here, here's some here's a way you can buy some of our stuff via the digital channel um, or, or engage with us via the digital channel. Um, there's not really a customer-led business model where, you know, it breaks down the traditional barriers where, you know, those silos where you had, a, you know, you had a traditional kind of wealth management practice that delivers uh, through advisors and then you might have a branch and they might have some sort of version of selling you a, a product um, and then now you have disc, you know, you have digital and then you'll have a discount brokerage, but none of them are very cohesive components of a kind of a holistic wealth management strategy that allows and helps customers that kind of gain awareness of their financial health, that allows them to engage and enable them to interact with, with the firm in the ways that they want, how, you know, how they want, when they want. Um, and I know that that's really, you know, kind of a utopian state um, and, and it should be really agnostic of asset sizes and so on. Um, not easy, but I think doable. Do you think that the um, the reason that we haven't had this type of innovation in the business, uh, because well, let me take a step back. It seems that you're saying that the world is is evolving faster, changing faster than our industry. I think that that's a fair um, fair analysis. But do you think that the reason that our industry is so slow at innovation and we're not seeing that like rapid uh, a rampant uh, innovation is because of regulation? Do you think it's because of the the leadership within these organizations um, being just too comfortable, uh, or do you think it's because the the clients aren't ready for it? Yeah, um, you know, tough question. I think all of those, Matt, probably play play uh, play a role. Um, it's hard to think about you know, transforming a business meaningfully when, when you're set up, you know, I'm thinking of an incumbent way, but it can, it can probably um, expand to sort of an RIA type of business. 
you know, think of the RIA business, which I think is more of your your listenership. Um, you know, you've got an average RIA age of what fifty eight to fifty nine in the U.S. Have a pretty good book um, of business. You know, the question I would ask is, do they even want to innovate? Do they want to grow? So then you've got the RIA ownership or business, you know, the, the, the management or executive who, who think more in a long-term horizon. And yes, they do. But their conundrum is, how do I incent our, our advisors to engage meaningfully with, with these types of innovations that we, we have access to? Um, and so I see that as a, as a key challenge. And in, in some of the bigger wirehouses that have, you know, the full spectrum uh, of offers, you know, they have these huge silos that are, are really difficult to break down those barriers, um, the incentive structures, the organization and operating models that are in place to support are really conflicted. You've got, you know, someone in private banking who owns that P&L who, who, you know, has folks in branches that are incented in certain ways. Then you've got someone running, you know, traditional wealth management and they view digital offers as cannibalizing. And then you've got kind of a catch-all, you know, self-directed. Um, digital uh, or online brokerage leadership who's trying to, you know, take take people in digital and how does that work with digital wealth advice? So I think there's there's this sort of spaghetti uh, that needs to be untangled, um, but I think it it will over time. I mean, it must because because the, the the marketplace is changing. The way that we interact with, you know, all parts of our lives has consumers expecting more, um, and that'll that'll transcend even to more complicated, sticky areas like. Uh, like you know, one's wealth and savings, and, and I think that the um, yeah, because I agree with what you're saying. I think it's a piece of each of those, and I think that it, it's it's a difficult. I, I think that the industry is at a difficult kind of crossroad, right? Because I think there's this innovation that's happening within the technology space, and also, and not yet on the business model like you're talking about. I think that that is something that's really interesting. How are we charging for fees? What are the services that we're delivering, and how do we keep uh, you know all of that kind of in one house? But is that we're at this crossroad where people are seeing technology be used in other industries that are kind of automating and relieving duties in that industry. And then, you know, the industry is kind of fighting that innovation within our space because it's like we don't our value is the relationship. And, you know, we don't want that to be kind of stepped on. And so it's at a crossroads of saying, how do those two kind of merge together to where the people that are in the industry, the incumbents are accepting of the change and the technology that's coming in is not replacing them, but augmenting these individuals. And so I think that that you know, that's kind of a crossroad. And, and so the, the, I guess the next challenge, and I, I want to pose this question to you because it's like a lot of these incumbents are like Titanics, right? That Titanic mm -hmm. ship, right? It's how it's hard to turn that type of ship, right? And, yep. um, and so when you have, you know, all these different verticals and you have an older founder and then you have a, a, an incentive plan that's not structured the right way, it's hard to turn that ship. But doesn't that mean that that bodes well for young incumbent startup type firms in this industry um, to be able to come and 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 kind of you know, really kind of innovate in the space? That's what it would lay out to be. But I think the the regulation on this side—that's where I get with the regulation, right? It's hard for a smaller shop to really be successful and and, and mm. dethrone one of those incumbents. So I, I'd love to kind of just know your thoughts on that. Well, you said a, a bunch of things. Um, one one that was interesting was was you know how you describe the, the the sort of the lay of the land of the Titanic and 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 whether that um, you know created an environment for the upstart to be uber successful and I think one thing I'd say is you know let's remember that 
that meaningfully, really over time, about 1% of a population has been engaged by the wealth management category. So, you know, financial literacy is extremely low amongst Americans, really amongst, you know, if you look at that globally, that, that, that trend um, plays out. Uh, people, you know, hold a lot of perceptions and, and a lack of understanding. So when you start looking, and we, we cover this, we look at, you know, kind of awareness in a variety of ways amongst consumers for, you know, the wealth management category, digital wealth advice specifically, you know, people just don't know what they don't know. Um, and so, you know, the, that's the challenge I think that will both incumbents, but also upstarts have. And then you have to say to yourself, if you're, you're an incumbent, you know, in, in the face of this, where is this world going? You know, what is our business going to look like in, you know, 20 years? And maybe as an advisor, a specific advisor running a, you know, a decent sized book, I, and I'm 58, I, you know, I don't maybe care that much. Um, and so the owners have to figure out and the managers and leaders have to figure out how do we incent uh, the right types of behaviors amongst that, that cohort. But that doesn't mean that the business is not going to change and that folks are going to want wealth management service. They just are going to probably want it a little bit differently. And, and the other thing that you, you, you said that keyed into my, into my thinking was around that value proposition of, you know, the relationship. Well, you know, I, I challenge folks and businesses to really think about what does that look like and how do you, you know, how do you make sure that that relationship is, is strong? Is it going to be by playing golf with your key clients? Well, great. But you can only do that for a small cohort of clients. And so what about all of the other folks that you want to serve over time who may not who may be high earners with low assets? Um, you know, you want to you want to foster a business that can grow and that, you know, over time. Um, and so how do you service those folks in the ways they want? And by the way, you may have high net worth people that don't want to play golf with you or what have you, but really just want to, you know, want a better digital experience. Mm -hmm. So. You know, how do you figure those things out? It, it, it's important and, uh, and and will have to be achieved before before someone gets it. And, I, and, and you make that point. I mean, going on the human relationship aspect and your research has shown it within, I think it was either the last quarter study or the quarter before about what services uh, features drive loyalty among U.S. US clients and it was uh, availability of an advisor and availability of customer service right those are, two, those are that's human capital that is still yep. valued in a relationship and so the idea that our value is weakened is not there but now the question gets to is you know if you want to grow which is when I talk to financial advisors that's their main challenge how do I grow faster and how do I grow more efficiently right and so if you want mm -hmm. to do that and you know that human capital is still necessary or valuable to your end client. What are ways that you're seeing in the space as you're talking to firms and you're, you're doing this research that firms can be more efficient and keep to, to deliver that valuable resource of human capital? Yeah, so that's a tough one. And I would caveat uh, the user base for, for sort of digital wealth advice platforms is still quite low, relatively immature um, offer. Um, and I would also say that, you know, we measure we measure a lot of things about, you know, around consideration. So what kind of features, you know, will drive consideration to engage with, you know, a digital wealth platform, for instance? Um, you know, what's what's a you know, what 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 features are are driving likelihood to recommend or, or a net promotion score, for instance, amongst users? So there's some change. And what I would say is that as as a category matures and people become more and more familiar 
um, those variables or those features will will change as well over time. Um, that's not to say, and, and certainly we see this in both both Canada and the U.S. Um, the you know customer service and and the access to somebody uh, is still driving and is still important. And I think that speaks to the complexity of of kind of wealth management generally. These are it's not really a transactional type of. Uh, of service or or, or offer, um, it's more complicated, and so you know humans want want to speak to somebody uh, when they're feeling um, you know some uncertainty and unknowns. So these firms, I think the question was how how can you how can you kind of do both? I think you know as a first step, you know keep, find ways to 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 make your business uh, operate much more effectively and efficiently so that you can understand your client base better. So you can onboard clients, of course, more, more easily, you know, we hear in the, in the space lately, and I don't like this term terribly, but the, you know, the hybrid model, um, it just seems very nebulous and kind of made up to me, but like, I don't like the term robo advisor as well. Um, it, to me, it's really finding that right balance to having a modern, kind of well-enabled and efficient um, business operation model, uh, and finding the right keys to engage with the customer, but in the ways that they want. Not necessarily, not every customer wants to be called all the time or wants to go to an office and meet with you. It's trying to understand and segment your books uh, and your customers in, in more appropriate ways than, than traditionally was kind of here's an asset breakdown. And that's how, you know, these clients are the highest net worth and my most valuable. So I'll treat them in a certain way. I think I think we need to figure out treating customers in the ways that they want. And you'll find in some of the work we do, we see this around customer segmentation. You don't, you know, it's not your age. It's not your wealth that drives how you want to be engaged with. It's many other things. Um, and, and I think you'll find economies of scale when you look at it that way as well. Wait, wait, yeah, speaking of customer segmentation, because I think that that's, you know, in segmentation, some advisors like the word, some advisors don't. It's kind of up in the air. But customer diversification, I don't know what you want to, what would be a better word? Understanding. Understanding. <laughs> Where, I, because I agree with you, right? It, it's not just going based off of age or asset size or location or whatever it may be. So for an advisor that's listening out there or, or anybody out there that's listening to that war, it's like, okay, I would love to be more efficient and effective with onboarding and knowing my clients, et cetera. Where do they start with segmentation? What, what do you suggest from a starting point for doing client segmentation effectively? Um, I mean, I would I would survey your your customers. You can do that informally or or, or formally, um, and and ask them. I mean, ask them how they want to be engaged with. Uh, when you have an you know, if you have any tech, if you're starting to make investments in tech, you're using a firm like Wella or or others. Um, you know, you can start to gain data from the onboarding processes um, when you're doing your 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 um, customer reviews, your annual reviews. You can start to understand more and more about them. Um, and I think questions are are you know, how do you want to be engaged? Do you do you do you want more? Do you want more goals based um, planning? And do you want that delivered to you? You know, digitally, mm -hmm. or do you want to have a meeting? Just you know, understanding how kind of psychographically your book breaks down. Are you comfortable with the technology? Is this something? Do you want more articles? Is is there is there ways that we can deliver information and knowledge to you that that you know you how you want to receive it when yeah. you want to receive it? Those you know a lot of those kinds of questions I think are are important and I think there's a, there's just you know the sky's the limit really in trying to understand how your how your customer base is.
And I think that you're you're exactly right there. And it starts with like a idea. I mean, you have to have a firm wide buy-in, right? Of what are the questions that we're going to ask? What are the questions we're going to try to kind of sneak into our meetings in terms of help us better understand, like how are we going to start the meeting? But then you need to be able to um, have the ability of of where do you manage all that data, right? Like, so you may do it in your CRM, or you may do it in your, you know. Uh, I don't know, even in your email inbox or on a spreadsheet that someone's managing, whatever it may be, so that you can go and say, all right, here's the answers that everybody says. This is how we should delineate it. But I would also you know, press on the side of saying that sometimes your clients don't even know what they don't know, something you alluded to earlier, right? And so you asking them, it kind of goes to, I always go back to this Henry Ford quote. You know, If Henry Ford asked them what everybody wanted, they'd say a faster horse, and he decided to build a car. And so yeah. uh, you know, it also goes into this idea of, you got to iterate, right? Have those segments of clients that you want to iterate on and see, you know, if you do send a text message, do they open it? Do they respond to it? You got it. Right? You got it. And do it. In, you don't have to do it on your whole clientele, but if you understand, like you're saying, your clients, then you can do it on a segment of them, see if it works, and then iterate. But don't let that one failure of it not working stop you from innovating. Uh- uh, absolutely. It's, you know, t- it was test and learn. You keep trying, trying stuff. Uh, I, you know, I alluded to one way of, of gaining data is asking. You're, you're so right on is, you know, there's wells you're observing too. What happens in markets when markets turn one way or another? Who's calling? Who's not? Who's looking at their, you know, do you have, do you have technology that shows if, if, if the clients are checking their accounts online? Where are they checking it? You know, where are those engagement moments that we can that we can understand and then understand how is the best way to engage with those customers? You'll you'll be you'll be winning from a satisfaction perspective uh, for sure. A hundred percent. And so I want to uh, I'm going to move. We're going to move into buy sell here in a second. But I, I want to kind of get your crystal ball out and and let's look five to ten years down the road, right? How um, you know? Let's just look at wealth management as a whole. Where is this industry? five to 10 years from now, are we going to be drastically different? And I know that you, you said earlier in the, in the podcast that you, you wish that it had evolved maybe faster given the technology uh, desire you have. Where are we in five to 10 years as an industry? Um, yeah, I'd like to say vastly different. Um, I, my, my hunch is it won't be vastly different. The, the key conundrum really is how do firms uh, better gain or excuse me gain traction uh, and consumer awareness? You know, I'd love to see there are you know wealth management in in, in large part has has become a bit commoditized in the sense that anyone, literally anyone, can have a, a, a well balanced portfolio um, that 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 rebalances maybe automatically. There's some tax loss harvesting. They can see their their accounts. They can move money easily. Um, they can, you know, it can be a, tied to various, you know, life goals uh, for, you know, very very low fee, low cost, um, and you don't have to have two hundred fifty thousand, five hundred thousand, or a million dollars to have those uh, those types of services. Um, but nobody knows, you know, some of our data. We look at barriers to to engaging with a digital wealth advice platform. The number one barrier is this perception that we, you know, I don't have enough enough to invest. Actually, fifty percent of of U.S. folks uh, say that. Um, but then we, and, which is worrying, right? Uh, and then you you sort of unpack that, and we looked at looked at a little more closely, and we saw that of that, 
30% of them were making over 100K a year, had over 100K in investable assets. So that's a perception that I think is, is overcomable, which would lead to some very transformative um, things within the industry over time if they can start to get those folks engaged. Then there was another 41% of U.S. consumers don't, just don't know enough about these offers. So what, what can we do? You know, what can happen there? And then there's the whole, you know, the, the broader question, I suppose, which is, you know, fundamentally, is traditional advice dead? Is it going to be completely, you know, digitized and, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's, you know, little or no human interaction. And I'd say kind of probably not, you know, humans like humans. Uh, but I think the, the, the old, you know, if you were to draw a picture, of the old advisor model and what did that look like? You know, the mahogany offices and the suited, you know, male advisor, whatever. I think those days are, are certainly not going to be, you know, existing in, in five to 10 years. I think, you know, I think the way that, that people are going to be engaged is going to be a little bit different um, or should be a lot different. And I think the business model should be um, much different in terms of, you know, its use of technology to, to make the experience a little bit more uh, cohesive and, you know, enable customers to have access to it at all the time mm -hmm. uh, rather than just, you know, an advisor moving through a book to, to sort of do an annual review or whatever and meet with someone for 10 minutes or half an hour once a year. That, those days are definitely done. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I think, you know, five, 10 years, it should look a lot different. Yeah. No, I think that hedges, that's a good hedge answer right there because it's like, yeah, it'll be <laughs> different. It'll be... <laughs> no, I think that is a good answer. And I think that it, you know, the, I think that the evolution of the space, it, it may not be drastic, as drastic as like what Amazon did to the retail space, but I think it's a drastic yeah. in the sense of, uh, you know, in the next five years, I think that there's going to be more and more advisors open to trying to evolve and trying to learn about new ways of doing business. And I think that that's, they have I, they, if they don't, they're not going to be here, uh, I, I believe. And so that, I think that you're right. Uh, you're right on point there. So let's move in. Given that this is a firm for wealth management industry and financial advisors, we have to lump in some buy, sell, uh, you know, because that's what everybody knows. That's what everybody loves to talk about. You know, still, Love still people come up to me and, and, and at, you know, random events and say, well, what are you buying today? Are you buying this stock? I just bought this stock. And I'm like, I do more than just buy and sell. But um, anyhow, we'll move into it. Buy or sell. So I'm going to give you four statements. You let me know if you're bullish or bearish buying or selling, and then we'll chat through you know, them for a minute or so each if we need to. All right. Yep. First one, buy or sell. The financial advisory world will see a consolidation in firms over the next five years. For sure a buy. Um, and this activity is already happening. Uh, some of the larger houses are trying to, you know, sw swallow up um, some of the smaller ones and, and just build scale that way. Uh, I think strategy that, you know, from a strategic perspective, that makes sense. Demographics are also aligning massively to that type of uh, type of behavior, I think. So strong buy for me on that one. Yeah. And I think that if firms want to position themselves to be acquired, then having been really efficient is going to make you be looked a little bit higher or better than. Abs absolutely. Um, absolutely. I agree. So that's something if you are looking for, that's a good strategy. Buy or sell, Acorn, Stash, Wealthfront, and Elvest will be bought within the next five years. Oh, that's, <laughs> that is a tough, tough one. Um, I get asked this a, a bit and, and I think, so two things cause me problems to answer and I know it's supposed to be really quick. Um, the five years, is, it's tough to put a time on it. 
I kind of want to say it's a buy, but I actually think it's, I, I think I'd sell, I'd sell that statement. I think, you know, the incumbent, you know, when you think about who would be the buyers, you know, the incumbent would be the incumbent, you know, larger, larger, larger wirehouses. They're already making their moves. You know, they've already they've already sort of established partnerships, or they're you know they've engaged a firm like Sigfig or InvestCloud to build to build out some some capability. Um, so I, I think you know the, the firm of the firms you mentioned certainly because they're they're gaining some some stature. Uh, I think they'll need to compete on kind of their own merits. Uh, and and candidly, I think some of them have real reasons that they can win. I mean, Acorns and Stash have 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 approached it in a unique way. And I think they're doing well, and I, you know, I think you know, Wealthfront and Elvest have have a value proposition as well that they can compete on. Yeah, it, it's going to come down to customer acquisition, right? Like how, what, if that is sustainable to get to that point relative to the customer acquisition? I think of the big, big players. We haven't gotten that right yet. You see, yeah. that's that's that whole awareness thing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I'm I'm with you on that one. I think that's going to be hard for them to compete because some of those those people or the bigger players are making their moves. But uh, I think that they do have some uh, some unique props. Uh, Acorns right. is adding 180,000 customers a month. Apparently, that's unreal. That's unreal. Might be small small accounts, but I mean, there's a lot of value in having that many people engage with you. Yeah, and we're and we're sure that they're not doing the well. They're not pulling the Wells Fargo move, right? Where they're actually adding real people, real real accounts. I'm kidding. I don't mean to throw wells under the bus. Uh, actually, I do. Uh, buy or sell? The current technology stack of a financial advisor will be the same technology stack they have, let's say, seven years from now. Another tough one. So that needs to be a sell, I would say. Uh, if it's the same stack in seven years, I think you're in a huge amount of trouble. It just comes back to that question of. Of uh, you know, can can they you know will they move? Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say they will, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna say stop. I like the optimism, glass half full kind of guy. That's what we like. On yes. The show. Uh, giving the advisors the benefit of the doubt. Uh, buy or sell? Last one. Over the next five years, financial advisors will begin seeing clients leave on the basis of a lack of innovation across all segments of their business, from business to technology, etc. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, maybe maybe it goes against the last the last uh, recommendation, but I, I have to say I'm going to buy on that one. Unfortunately, um, you know, in our research, we're we're seeing you know we look at consumers who have it, who are engaged already with the with a traditional advisor, um, and 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 ask them about you know what's their engagement with a digital wealth advice platform, and we see a lot of things. Um, in there, one of which is is meaningful shopping behavior. So you know, if you're if you have a, f- a financial traditional advisor, there's a, m- a higher likelihood that that you absolutely know about and are aware of digital wealth advice alternatives. Uh, that you're you're engaging with them. You might not be moving your whole book, but you're trying it out. You're putting five, ten, twenty, whatever thousand bucks in. And, and then the other thing is they're also much more satisfied with the experience. Um, and so, you know, with those shopping behaviors, I think, um, I think there is a bit of a time crunch uh, for some of them. I mean, I know, you know, I, I have an advisor and he's a family member and he's great, but I can't, and, you know, he's in one of the wirehouses, but I can't check my accounts on my phone. Mm. I mean, that's insane. Um, I can't see it tied to any, you know, financial goals that we've set. Um, so the way I, I can engage with him is, is frustrating. And it makes me think that you know those are the types of things that other people will be experiencing as well, and and that foster a, a reason to move. 
Yeah, I don't think that three and four contradict themselves. I think it just says that if you don't change your tech stack, then you will yeah. see clients leave from innovation, which I agree with. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people that just get stuck in their ways and are too late of movers, and um, and we'll see. You got it. We'll see people. But maybe that's what they want. Maybe that's what they want. Right. You know, it's a lifestyle a nice business. business. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're right. Um, all right. Well, I always like to give our guests 90 seconds to kind of give a closing thought, and I'll pose a question. You can go a different direction if you want. Um, but what, what's one thing that you've learned from your research that an advisor can really take into their firm and implement tomorrow to really set them apart or ahead of the competition uh, that they're, they're facing today? Yeah, um, I would say, you know, be innovative, creative, and very clear about what the value proposition that you're striving to achieve and offer um, is. And that, you know, and, and how does it center around the way you deliver a client experience? You know, people are demanding more and more from every type of purchase and service, purchase decision and service experience uh, that, that we all have. And so I think this increased sort of set of expectations is perhaps slower to move um, in these, you know, less transactional arenas like money management, planning services, and so on, the trend line is that it's definitely, you know, coming from a consumer perspective, that those expectations are shifting. And as uh, as people's awareness to alternatives and, and, and ways to engage change and increase, um, I think, you know, if I'm an advisor and, and, and you know, I'm not evolving to, to, to sort of meet or exceed that and understand that, um, then I think you're 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 going to see net um, net outflows rather than inflows of your asset base over time. I love that, and I think that it's the the value prop is to me is is similar to the why, which I, I I've spoken about. So I love that. So I might take mine going down a similar path. I recently read a quote from McKinsey. The quote was: "Many companies confuse digital with technology. Recognize that a digital transformation is first and foremost a culture change, end quote. As we talk a lot about innovation in our industry and then within our companies, we have to ask ourselves, how do we innovate? We've talked before how you have to have the three pillars of innovation, the why, the culture of learning, and then adoption of technology. We understand the why, but what does it mean to have a culture of learning? A culture of learning starts from the top. And it's an idea that we're going to innovate in our company and we're going to open our eyes to things that are out there, whether it's going to a tech company to see how, they're, how they are structured to start innovating on how you want to structure your new office or how you want to organize your teams. Or it could be technology. What are the new technologies out there? Understand them. Understand how companies in other industries are using them. Think about how you may be able to achieve efficiencies with that technology. But most importantly, a culture of learning accepts the idea of failure. It accepts the idea that if something doesn't work, it's okay, that this failure is a lesson to build off of and that we are a company that wants to try new things because despite some failing, each failure sets us ahead of where we would have been had we not tried it. But we are a firm that doesn't just go back to our ways because it's easier and more comfortable. A culture of learning reality is a culture that is comfortable being uncomfortable. That means adopting new technologies, new ideas, new processes, new workflows, and being okay 
if they don't work to perfection. Because if we don't have this culture of learning, then adopting any new technology is going to see is not going to see the real ROI that we've always expected. But more importantly, it's not going to lead to the adoption that is needed to really innovate and revolutionize our firm. To Josh Book, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging the Gap uh, this week. And to all of our listeners out there, uh, thank you again for tuning in to another episode of Bridging the Gap. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think 